We turn with me your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 32. Acts chapter 20, verses 25 to 32. But first, let's join together in prayer for our country. Father in heaven, we lift America up to you, Lord. We have never needed you so desperately as we need you now, Lord. And we confess our sin, Lord, that is a result of the blessing and prosperity that you have given this country. We have become proud and arrogant, Lord, and turning our backs on you and acting as though uh, we did it all ourselves and we don't need you, Lord, and we're sinking deeper and deeper into darkness and moral depravity and chaos and anarchy. And so, Lord, we're asking you to forgive. We're asking you, Lord, to bring healing to our land. We're asking you to shine the light of truth, cause the gospel to spread, send a great revival, and turn this nation back to you. We pray for our president and his wife, Lord, that you would touch and heal, Lord, from this COVID virus. Uh, those of our friends and loved ones who, who are sick, Lord, that you would touch and heal, show forth your power. May the name of Jesus be exalted and glorified, Lord. We're so thankful to hear of all the testimonies of your faithfulness in providing for your people, uh, Lord, during the COVID shutdown. So we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord, and we ask you that you would come. Forgive us of our sin and heal our land. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 20, verse 25. And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among, among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each of you with tears. And now, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. If you were speaking to your loved ones, for what you knew would be the last time. You knew that you were never gonna see them again, this side of heaven. What would you wanna say to them? After you express how much you love them, if you were to give them any words of advice or words of wisdom, what would they be? They would probably have to do with what you personally believe is important in life. What you personally believe is most valuable. So I was thinking about what we as believers would say to our loved ones. 
if we're speaking to them for the last time. And then I start thinking of what the ungodly and unbelieving would say to their loved ones based upon what they believe is most important and most valuable in life. And I started wondering what that would be. Now remember, you only go around once in life. Be sure and get all the gusto. Hey, why don't, why don't we get a kegger and, and have some brewskis together one last time? Or maybe it would be You know what makes life good? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Go for it. Maybe it would be, always remember the immortal words of the great philosopher Timothy Leary. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Maybe it would be, remember, look out for yourself. No one else will. Maybe it would be, do unto others before they do unto you the philosophies of the unbelieving and the ungodly, what's important to them, what's valuable to them, how differently it would be for us as believers. Because after we tell them how much we love them, if we wanted to give them any words of wisdom, it would be something God has said about how to be sure you can experience real peace and real joy in this life and how you can be certain you're gonna be in heaven with God forever. That's what Paul's doing. He's speaking to the elders, the spiritual leaders of the church of Ephesus for the last time. He knows. And he expresses to them, you're going to see my face no more. And so he's going to leave with them words about that which is most important and most valuable in God's mind and in God's heart because he's not going to be speaking to them again. And it made me start thinking, because I'm getting closer to that day, uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, I'm going to be stepping down and, and turning this church and this ministry over to some incredibly gifted and anointed young men. So in the not-too-distant future, all of a sudden I realize. I'm going to be sitting down and preparing my final message to this church. After 38 years of you guys having to sit here and listen to me ramble on about God, I'm going to be bringing my final message to the church, and I began wondering what that would be. And I realized it's going to be an emotional time, just as it was an emotional time for Paul. At the end of the chapter, verses 36 and 37, Paul, it says that they knelt down and prayed together on the beach, and they wept together. So let's understand, there's nothing in Paul's mind or heart that is more important than the final words of wisdom that he is leaving with the spiritual leaders of the church of Ephesus. And before he gives his advice to them, he reminds them that he's innocent of the blood of all men because he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole purpose of God, meaning the whole counsel of God. God has made me his messenger. That's a great honor, but it's also a grave responsibility. Paul knew it was his responsibility to bring to God's people the entire message and not leave anything out. But what does he mean, 
I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I didn't leave anything out. I brought you the whole message. Well, he's probably thinking of the passage of Scripture in Ezekiel chapter 3 where God calls Ezekiel to be his messenger. And the message will be a warning to God's people of impending judgment and destruction if they don't turn and repent from their evil ways. And he tells Ezekiel, if you do not warn them and they don't repent, they're going to perish, but their blood will be on your hands. If you are faithful to warn them and they don't repent, they're still going to perish, but their blood will be on their hands and you will have delivered yourself. And so Paul recognized this awesome, awesome responsibility for those who are called to preach and teach uh, God's word, to bring the whole counsel of God. Uh, I would not want to be in the shoes of those who pick and choose which passages of Scripture they want to teach on and then purposely omit other passages of Scripture because they don't personally feel comfortable with those passages or they're fearful that the, the congregation might be uncomfortable with those passages of Scripture. But God has designed His Word in, to have the perfect balance between comfort and conviction, between encouragement and exhortation. And God has designed his word so that there are certain passages of scripture that are designed to make people feel uncomfortable. So his people won't be able to come to church week in and week out and continue to feel very, very comfortable in a sinful lifestyle. There are some pastors who won't ever use the word sin, who won't ever use the word repentance. Well, those words make people uncomfortable, and if people are uncomfortable, they might not want to come back, and if I want to have a thriving, successful ministry, I'm not going to make people uncomfortable. I'm never going to use the word repentance or the word sin. Well, think about that for a minute. How can anyone ever get saved in those ministries? Because the first step in salvation is repentance. Repentance comes first before saving faith. And how could you ever explain the cross of Jesus Christ and why he died if you're not going to mention the word sin? That's why he died. How will people know the importance? How will people know their desperate need for the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ, to cleanse them from all sin if that word is never mentioned? Now, we want to be able to say that we are innocent of the blood of of all men, because this doesn't just pertain to pastors, because all believers have been called to be his witnesses. He has committed to all of us the word of reconciliation. He has committed to us all the ministry of reconciliation. So we need to feel a responsibility to make sure our friends and loved ones, whether they accept the message or not, they know exactly what the message is about how we're separated from God by our sins. Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross, so through repentance and faith in Christ, we're forgiven, and that we get to go to heaven. And they may not come to Christ, but at least they know what the message of the good news is all about. Because all of us want to be able to say, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So then Paul goes into his advice, these final words of wisdom that he wants to leave these spiritual leaders of the church of Ephesus with. And he says, 
Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among whom God has made you overseers. Be on guard for yourselves and the flock. What comes first before the flock? Yourselves. Why? You have to guard yourself first so that you will be able to guard the flock. The pastor-church relationship is likened unto the shepherd-sheep relationship. Now the predator's trying to get in to get the sheep, drag them away, devour them. But he can't do that if the shepherd is on duty and doing his job. The best thing for the predator is if somehow the shepherd can be removed and taken out of the way, then the predator has free reign to get to the flock. And so it's a reminder to spiritual leaders. And remember, uh, fathers, all fathers are spiritual leaders. All fathers have their own little flock to guard and watch over spiritually and morally. So there's a, there's a target on our back. Our adversary, predator, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he's after the shepherd. Take the shepherd out. Take the shepherd down. Then you, then you get a free reign to get to the sheep. That's a biblical principle. Strike the shepherd, you will scatter the sheep. And we know how that works because we've seen churches that have been torn apart because of some scandal having to do with the pastor. He's been sleeping with a woman in the church or he's been embezzling money. It disgraces the name of Christ in the community, but it also rips apart the church. So the, the enemy first wants to take down the pastor. So how do spiritual leaders, including fathers as spiritual leaders in their homes, how do we guard ourselves so that we can guard our flock? It has to do with our own personal devotional life. It has to do with being diligent and consistent in our personal devotional life. That's the only way we stay strong. We daily put on the full armor of God. My enemy is smarter than me and he's stronger than me, but he's not stronger than Christ. So I daily meet with God so that I can be filled up with his power and his strength. We can't pour out until we are first filled up. And so ministry is the overflow from the life of a minister who's filled with the Spirit of God. Now, you can't give measles. Ministry is kind of like measles. You can't give it if you don't have it. And, and that's the calling of God. That's how we guard ourselves so that we can guard the flock. Whenever Jacob spent any amount of time in a particular place, he would always build an altar. And he would go to that altar on a daily basis to meet with God. He would worship God. He would uh, meditate on the word. He would pray. He would intercede for his family. Now that altar for us is our prayer closet. Wherever it is, we get alone with God to meet with God. And an altered life is an altered life. And we are changed and transformed. We are conformed into the image of Christ because of the time we spend with Christ. This is the only way we can guard ourselves in order that we may guard the flock. So he goes on to say, shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. What does the pronoun he refer to? 
which he purchased with his own blood. It refers to the word God. The church of God, which he, God, purchased with his own blood. Who died on the cross to shed his blood to make atonement for sin? Jesus did. This is another clear scriptural declaration of the deity of Christ, the divine nature of Christ. He is God, the Son, the second person of the triune deity. He purchased the church of God, the Son, with his own blood. Now, you know how much, how valuable something is to a person when you look at the price they were willing to pay for it, the purchase price. If someone spends a million dollars for a guitar that was once owned by Elvis Presley, you know how valuable that guitar is to them. Now, you and I might not care. We might not pay $2 for that thing. But you can see how valuable it is to the person who bought it. We know how valuable we are to the Lord because of the purchase price, the price that he paid for us. Now, if you had something really valuable to you and you're going to leave it in someone's care because you're, you're leaving, you're going away, would you watch over this and, and, and take care of this for me until I get back? And then you get back to find out they lost it? You're either going to be extremely disappointed or extremely angry depending on how much value that item had to you. If it was a diamond necklace, you're going to be extremely disappointed. But if it was a child, what? My child is missing? You're going to be extremely angry. And so we know the heart of our Lord with regard to spiritual leaders and pastors because we know how valuable we are to the Lord because of the purchase price and he has entrusted that which he purchased by his own blood to the care of these shepherds. It's an honor to have that calling but it's also a grave responsibility. So shepherd the flock of God and that word shepherd is often translated feed, because in addition to the task of guarding and protecting the sheep, the shepherd has the task of feeding the sheep. Uh, God, the shepherd doesn't want his sheep to be anemic, weak, and sickly because they're not well fed. Jesus said to Peter, who was called to full-time ministry, if you love me, feed my sheep. So because you're called to full-time ministry, the primary way you can show your love for me is pour yourself into study and preparation so that my people are well-fed. Well-fed sheep represent well-taught believers. But some pastors act as though Jesus said, if you love me, beat my sheep. And, and the message is so often harsh and hard and, and, and angry. And God's people come faithfully to church to get their weekly beating and they go away bruised and, and bloody and, and, and feeling condemned. How does that make the Lord feel? I remember one time in the first year of my marriage, I spoke very harshly to my wife. And it, we, just, we just disagreed on something. Disagreeing is no big deal. What I said to her, I could have said in a kind way, but I snapped at her and it was harsh and a little later I found her in the bathroom crying. And it broke my heart because I know why she was crying. It wasn't because of what I said. 
It was because of the way I said it. I crushed her spirit. It broke me. I got on my knees. I begged God to forgive me, and then I begged God to change me. God, you have to change me. I never want to do that to my wife again. I never want to find her in the bathroom crying again. And God has been very gracious to help me in that area. But keep in mind, the church is the bride of Christ. How does he feel when she is being spoken harshly to? How does he feel when his bride is being verbally abused? Well, we know how he feels. Sometimes pastors act like Jesus said, if you love me, fleece my sheep. Because they're always talking about money. It's always harping on money. It's always pressuring people to give more, more, more. It's always putting guilt trips on people because they're not giving enough. I travel around the country preaching the gospel and there's an urgent need to get the message out. Yes, I have a jet plane, but I need a faster one. And you need to give more. You're not giving enough. I'm serving the Lord. I'm doing the work of the Lord. I need a bigger, faster plane. People have to sit and listen to that kind of stuff. How angry does that make the Lord? We know how angry. He went into the temple and he turned over the tables of the money changers who were exploiting the people of God, making merchandise of the people of God so they could be wealthy. And he drove them out. My father's house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. So he didn't say, if you love me, beat my sheep. If you love me, fleece my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. And what does that represent? Well-fed sheep are well-taught believers. Why do the believers, why is it so urgent, so important that believers are well-taught in the word of God, because Paul knows what's gonna happen. He knows how the enemy is gonna work. He knows how relentlessly our enemy is. He knows that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise up speaking perverse things, drawing away disciples after them. You guard the flock by feeding them. They're guarded and protected when they are well taught. Paul knows constantly the enemy is going to be attacking with some false teaching, and God's people need to be protected from that. Now, I was ordained in 1973, and after 47 years of ministry, I can attest this is what the enemy does. It's going, it's always happened. It's always going to happen. These winds of false doctrine will be blowing through the church. Wave after wave of false teaching. I remember back in the 70s, we had to deal with the shepherding doctrine. I don't know if you were around then, if you remember that, but as believers, you would have to get permission from your pastor if you wanted to date somebody. If you could date them where you could go on your date. If you wanted to buy a car, you had to get the approval of an elder. If you could buy a car, then what car you could buy and how much you could spend. Now, God was relying on his shepherds, his spiritual leaders, pastors, and teachers to be capable of showing clearly the congregation just how the scriptures are being twisted in order to come up with that teaching. Otherwise, it sounds very scriptural. 
Then I remember in the 80s when the prosperity doctrine came along, also called word of faith or name it, claim it. And we had, to, we had to deal with that because the teaching was you can have anything you want. You can create your own reality by the power of faith. If you have enough faith, just speak the word of faith, claim what you want, and it will happen. It has to happen. Well, what that did was it turned everything around. Instead of me being God's servant, I'm making God my servant. God has to follow me around waiting for me to claim what I want, and he has to do it because I have the faith to claim it and to make it happen. And we have to be capable of clearly explaining exactly how the scriptures are being twisted to arrive at that doctrine. Otherwise, they will make it sound very scriptural and many will be deceived. And then we have waves of of Calvinism from time to time that hit the church that that teach that uh, God doesn't love everybody and man doesn't have a free will to choose. So God chooses for people. And because he doesn't love everyone, the ones he doesn't love, he chooses hell for them. They have no say in the matter because he doesn't love them, so he doesn't want them in heaven. And there's never a a work of the Holy Spirit in their life to convict them of sin or to reveal Jesus or to draw them to Christ because if there was work of the Holy Spirit, they would have to come because they don't have a free will. It's called the doctrine of irresistible grace. So the reason they don't come to Christ is because they were never given the opportunity because God doesn't love them, therefore he doesn't want them. So everyone who is in hell is there for no fault of their own, no decision or choice they made. They don't have a free will. It's what God wanted for them. And as spiritual leaders, we have to be able to show how the, twist, the scriptures are being twisted to arrive at that doctrine and make sure God's people knows the nature of God. God is love. It's impossible for him not to love. And to make sure people understand it's not God's will. He's not willing for any to perish, not even one. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then I remember the, the, the wave of doctrine of the emergent church, which was teaching that God is love, and because God is love, everyone gets saved. A loving God would never send anybody to hell. Hell might as well not even exist because nobody's going to ever have to go there, so don't worry about how you live your life. God is love. He would never send you to hell. And we have to know exactly how they're twisting the scriptures to expose that teaching for what it is. Otherwise, they will make it sound very scriptural. And then there's the doctrine that the Holy Spirit doesn't work today the way the Holy Spirit was working in the church in New Testament times, and that the gifts of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, are not for today. God doesn't heal today. There are no miracles today. And it's our responsibility to guard the flock, to show how the the Scriptures have to be twisted to come to that conclusion. Otherwise, it's going to sound very scriptural. So... My people, my sheep need to be well fed. My people need to be well taught because then whenever any false teaching comes along, they'll recognize it right away. Well, that's not scriptural. That's not what the Bible teaches. And they'll be able to do that because they are well taught. But some will be wolves in sheep's clothing coming in with false teaching from the outside. Some will arise from among yourselves, from within you. Well, how do you recognize them? 
They may be wolves, but they're in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. How do we know? How do we recognize them? Notice what Paul says in verse 30. They're drawing away disciples unto themselves. There will be a certain amount of self-promotion. They're not making disciples of Jesus. They're making disciples of themselves. Those precious believers didn't move to Guyana because they were following Jesus. They were following Jim Jones. They didn't drink the Kool-Aid because they were following Jesus. It was because they were following Jim Jones who convinced all the women in the church that because he was continually pouring out love, he needed more love. He needed the women in the church to make love to him continually so he could have enough love to give out to the people. And they ended up becoming followers of Jim Jones. And there are those that rise up from within that want control. They want the people to follow them. Like Absalom, he was able to convince the people of Israel and many of the leaders of Israel that he would be a much better king than his father David. Man, if I was king, I would do this for you and this for you. I'd do everything the right way. And he almost got control of the kingdom. In fact, he did for a minute. But then God intervened and said, no, 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 I called David to lead this nation, not you. So there will be men with an attitude of self-promotion. You'll recognize them. They'll be seeking to draw away disciples after themselves. So Paul goes on to show them, remind them how serious this issue is. Don't you remember that night and day for three years, I did not cease to admonish you with tears? With tears! Warning them about false leaders, false teachers that will draw them away from Christ. For three years, night and day, he's warning them about this with tears. Why? Because false teaching is poison, spiritual poison. It's spiritually lethal. So the job of the shepherd is not just to feed the sheep, but to warn the sheep in order to protect the sheep. And some cases, it's not just exposing what the false teaching is. Some, in some cases, it's exposing who the false teachers are. And some people, oh, no, you should never do that. That's not loving to name names. Really? Paul did. Watch out for Demas. Watch out for Alexander the coppersmith. Watch out for Hymenaeus. Watch out for Philetus. Sometimes it's necessary in order to warn, to even Name names. If you knew there was a rattlesnake in your living room, would you let your child play in there? Would you say, no, no, my, my job as a parent is just to feed my child. My job is not to warn them or protect them. Of course not. And there are snakes at times slithering through the congregation seeking to poison the minds of the people toward solid teaching, toward the leadership. And it's the job of the spiritual leaders to expose it and make sure that it is removed. And so Paul concludes, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I, I'm leaving and I'm going to entrust you to God, so I'm going to commit you to God and to the word of his what? The word of his grace. Not to the word, not to the harsh, angry words of condemnation. 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those words tear down. It's only the message of grace that builds up. And pastors make a mistake of placing a greater emphasis in their teaching on what we must do for God than they place upon what God has done for us. That's a big mistake. If 90% of the teaching is on what we must do for God, only 10% on what he did for us, there's gonna be a heaviness on our hearts. It's gonna be a heavy, heavy burden, and there's gonna be a, a lot of condemnation. The emphasis needs to be on the message of what God has done for us, his grace. Until we're just so overwhelmed. God, look what you've done for me. You sacrificed your beloved son for me. You love me that much. Oh God, your faithfulness. Oh God, your goodness. How you delight in blessing your children. Oh God, these precious and wonderful promises. You're so good. I love you so much. Now with a heart full of love for God, I want to know how to express that love. How can I best express that love? It's by just living a life that's pleasing to him, that honors him. Yes, Paul did teach on how to walk in holiness, how to be obedient. But not until after he had gone into great depth about what God has done for us. So that we're so filled with this love for God, there's this desire to want to please our Heavenly Father in every way. How do we do that? Then we get into the scriptures that teach us how to live a life that's pleasing to him, but it's not out of fear of punishment and hell because that's what Jesus saved us from. It's a desire to be obedient to God out of our great love for him. And so this morning, I want to close with those same words. I I want to commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. And can you think of a better segue into the communion service than to just focus on the grace of God and what he's done for Oh yeah, first, we need to confess any sin that's in our lives, not with fear of punishment in hell, but out of love for God because we want to be pleasing to him in every way so we do confess any sin in our lives with great remorse and true repentance. But then, oh, then we start thanking him over and over again that that sin is paid for and we are forgiven and we leave this place with our hearts filled with the joy of our salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may this communion service be a time of building up your people as we become so focused on your amazing grace. Our hearts are encouraged. The burden of sin, guilt, and shame is lifted off of our hearts as we remember what the, what the bread stands for, your broken body. We remember what the juice stands for, the blood you shed for us. And we are reminded of how precious and valuable we are to you because we know the price you paid, that we might belong to you 
forever. If you're here today and you recognize who Jesus is, you recognize your need, your desperate need for the forgiveness of your sins that comes from Christ so you can have the assurance of heaven. If you're here today, you're watching online, you know you need Christ in your life, pray this prayer after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I have sinned. I have fallen short of your righteousness. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for suffering and dying for me. I believe in you. I receive you now as my Lord and my Savior. Come into my heart. Wash me and cleanse me from all sin. Make me whiter than snow. Fill me with the Holy Spirit that I might live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 